almost done with the with the epistle with the letter 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 epistle of James. And once again, as a rehash of what we studied for the last three weeks, James is instructing his Christian brothers and sisters who are going through a seemingly unending source of suffering. And he is telling them the way that you endure, the way you have patience through this seemingly unending suffering is by focusing on the day of the Lord, by establishing your heart to the day when the Lord will return, when he will set all things right. Okay? So that is really the call to every Christian, to set our minds, eyes always firmly at the hope that is to come when Christ is revealed. Christians in church history, oftentimes, when they think about the day of the Lord, some people take it drastically, especially Koreans. I don't know about something about Koreans and religious fanaticism. We do it like no other, right? So there was a cult in the the early 1990s where a dude in Korea said, the Lord is coming in, I don't know, 1992 or something. And so there was a group of people who sold their possessions who went up on the mountain and were just waiting until 1992 for the Lord to come. And that's not just Koreans. People that Paul was writing to in Thessalonians, they were doing the same thing. When they were thinking that the Lord will return, they sold all their possessions, went up on a mountain, and were simply waiting for the Lord to return. The Bible warns us against selling everything we have and doing nothing until the Lord returns. The Bible is clearly against that. So what is the biblical model? In the light of, in the certainty of the coming of Christ, how do we live in this world? I think a good illustration of the biblical view of how we are to live in this world comes from, in my opinion, I I found an interview clip with, with a guy, with a Navy SEAL who survived Hell Week, right, in the Navy basic training camp. If you want to be a Navy SEAL, at the end of your basic training, you have to go through Hell Week, and that's called BUDS, B-U-D-S. I don't know what that stands for, but that's what it is. So for the entire week, you do not sleep, basically. You go through all this physical, torturous situations, and they let you be sleep deprived for a week. And a lot of people cannot make it through the week. So I heard an interview, I read an interview about a Navy SEAL who gave secrets to how to survive Hell Week in Navy SEALs. He says, secret of surviving Hell Week, number one. No matter what pain that you're going through, know for certain that it's going to end in a week. You need to be firmly planted with the idea that whatever, whatever things that you're going through will come to an end. Do not lose that hope, he says. But number two, in order to survive Hell Week, you also need to divide your day, right? He says he divided his day into meals. He says, I just need to, every day, I just need to survive breakfast to lunch. Let's just focus on surviving from breakfast to lunch, and then focus on surviving from lunch to dinner. 
and focus on surviving from dinner to the next day. So he broke up his day into three segments, right? And just focus on what he needed to do that day. I think this is what the Bible is saying. Always have your hope, really have your hope on the day of the Lord, when the Lord's coming. But also have a clear view of each day of what you need to do, what God has called you to do. Because James is very clear. How we live in this world, what we do on the daily basis, how we treat people on a daily basis, what we, how we work on a daily basis, what, how holy we are on a daily basis, these, all of the ways that we, in which we live our lives, God will hold us, us to account. Have your eyes fixated on the coming of the Lord, but do not lose focus on what God has called you to do each day. Are you with me so far? This is the easy part of the theology. I'm going to get all like strange parts. What are we called to do every single day as we live in this world? I was like calculating like how many days I have left. Um, if I live for 20 years, I'm 50 now. If I live for 20 more years, I think I have like 7,000 days left. So what am I called to do for 7,000 days as I live here? Oh, man, today's almost over. I'm, I'm sad, right? So, like, what, is, what am I called to do for 7,000 days in my world, in, in, the, in my world here? All of us are called to glorify God in this world. In the 7,000 days that I have in this world, I am called to glorify God in all the days that I live in this world. And the question is, what does it mean to glorify God? When I was younger, I thought glorifying God was doing these great sacrificial acts for God. I thought glorifying God means me doing drastic things. Lord, I fasted for a week for you. Glory, Lord. Lord, I went to short-term missions for you. Glory, Lord. Lord, I gave you $1,000 as an offering. Glory, Lord. I thought glorifying God was synonymous with me doing great acts of faith. I was immature and wrong. It is certainly true doing great acts of faith does glorify God, I suppose, in certain ways. But glorifying God, it means more than this. The way you glorify God biblically, right, biblically, is two things. Number one, trace God in everything that you do. Everything that, that, that you go through in this world, you need to be able to point it back to God. And second thing you need to do in this world, you know, to glorify him, is to live consistently with his nature. You glorify God by tracing everything back to him. You glorify God by living consistently with his nature. I will unfold this. What does it mean to glorify God by tracing who he is? The God is glorified in scripture by revealing who he is. The way God is glorified in scripture is, is his revelation of who he is. Luke chapter 9, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to the mountain, and it says Jesus revealed his glory to them. Jesus fully displayed who he was to Peter, James, and John up on the mountain in Luke 9. Revealing, glorifying God means 
seeing Jesus in everything that you do in this world. This week, I'm telling you this because this week God was really gracious to me this week, where I began to see God in everything. In my studies in Luke 9, as I do it in the mornings, I get glimpses, a clear glimpse of who Jesus is. Through the Gospel of Luke, as I go slowly, passage by passage, Jesus is revealing who he himself, who he is to me. That is how I'm glorifying God, by studying the revelation and growing in my understanding of Jesus Christ. Are you with me? The purpose of your, one of the main reasons why you do devotions, it is so that you will discover who he is. And the, and the, and the act of discovering a new aspect of who Jesus is, that is how you glorify him. It's not only when you go to short-term mission to Guatemala that you glorify him. You glorify him in your study as you get a clear glimpse and understanding of who Jesus Christ is. Do you understand? Are you with me? Quiet times is that you glorify God by understanding who Jesus is. I discovered him as I was eating an ice cream bar. Like, I have a favorite ice cream bar, like a Korean ice cream bar. And I haven't had that in like 20 years. I took a bite of it. And celebration happened in my mouth. And I cannot, for some reason, I cannot help point to God about this great ice cream bar that I was tasting. You created this. You designed men and their creativity to create this amazing ice cream bar that I get to experience. I discovered Christ through Joe Rogan's podcast on Wednesday. He was interviewing this guy named Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson was talking about God and the Bible. As I was listening to the four-hour, what do we call it, podcast, as I was doing work, God revealed his reality nature to me through the podcast. This week, like, there was a pro bono case that I was working on. It was like a 13-year-old kid that the U.S. government wanted to kick out of America. Right? He, he he seeked asylum. The U.S. government turned him away. I get to work on his case. And by the grace and the mercy of God, this kid gets to stay in the U.S. Not because I'm such a great lawyer, but clearly I see the hand of God moving in this case so that that kid, whom the U.S. government said no, can stay in America. I was glorifying God. God, you did this to that kid. Do you understand? I was glorifying God when I was counseling my mother and my little brother who was going through very difficult trials in their lives. I couldn't offer them anything, but I'm, but I'm counseling them, praying for them, and I was praying for them. I'm comforting them, and the comfort that I offer them came from God. Every day this week, traces of God everywhere. That's how you glorify him, kids. Do you understand? Your great purpose in life, your great mission in life is to be, trace everything back to Christ. That's how you glorify him. Right? Man, I wish someone told me when I was younger about this, how you glorify God. You're so lucky. Second way you glorify God is you act consistently with his nature. 
God wants us to forgive because he is a forgiving God. God wants us to be sexually pure because God is pure. God wants us to be people of justice and righteousness because that is who he is. You're living inconsistently with his nature is how you glorify him. And that is what James is talking about in, 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 chapter, in James chapter 5, verse 12. He says, above all, brothers, do not swear an oath either by heaven or by earth. Interesting. For the last three weeks, chapter 5, we are, James is talking about um, people who are suffering to fix their hope in Jesus Christ. Right? That's what he's talking about. That's, that's what we studied for the last three weeks. Weeks before that, we're, we're, James is talking about, you know, t- telling his readers, do not be worldly. Draw near to God, right? Do not slander each other. He's telling them all these things in chapter 4. But in verse 12, he says, above all, which means before you do anything else, he says, do not swear an oath. He's talking about the day of the Lord, but in verse 12, he's talking about above all, before you do anything else that I told you in chapter 4 and chapter 5, do not swear an oath. That's very odd, isn't it? Right? What does swearing an oath? Why is swearing an oath the first thing that the Christians should do, not swearing an oath that a Christian should do. Why is James emphasizing this? James is emphasizing this because when he's saying, do not swear an oath, but simply, yet be, simply let your yeses be yes and no be no's, he's telling his Christian brothers that you should be people of truth. Not swearing an oath living consistently with what you say and do, that is living as a truthful person. And he's saying Christians, before anything else, should be a people of truth. I will unpack this a little bit. But keep in mind, Christians primarily are people of truth. We are saved by the truth. God is truth. Jesus is the truth, the way, and the life, right? Jesus Christ is the truth. We are saved by the truth. When the word of God is, where the truth of God is preached to you, your spirit and your mind recognizes it, it, and you are united with Christ through it, and you become saved. You are saved primarily through the truth. You are not saved through this whatever fantastical religious experiences that other people advocate. No, you are saved when the word of God is intelligently preached to you. Not only that, when God saves you, he transforms you. He transforms you primarily by renewing your mind in the truth. It is God who is true, who saves us through truth, who makes us grow through truth. Christians are primarily people of truth. Therefore, if you are a Christian, you need to live truthfully. And the definition of living truthfully is, according to James, according to Jesus, the definition of living truthfully is 
not only knowing the truth, but live consistently with the truth. Knowing the truth is doesn't, knowing the truth by itself does not make you a person of truth. It doesn't. I can have all the Bible knowledge of the world. I can have experiential knowledge of God. But if my everyday living is inconsistent with the truth that I believe, I am not a person of truth. James is saying, Jesus is saying, if you belong to God, you are a person who not only knows the truth, but your life, your behavior, your speech, your attitude conforms with the truth. Otherwise, you're a liar, regardless of what you claim to know. Are you, are you with me so far? Yeah? Some of you are like having your head down. Are you with me? Can I go? Can I go on? All right. James is getting verse 12 from Jesus' teachings on Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 37. Matthew 5 is a Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is describing what the child of God looks like. Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is describing what a person belonging to God looks like. Okay? And the thing that he teaches in Matthew 5 is a, is a person of God, are, is a person who does not take oaths, who simply, who simply, their yeses are yeses and no are noes, which means they live consistently to what they declare. Their words and their actions match. Let your yes be yeses, no be no means. Let your words match, let your actions match your words. That's what Jesus is saying. A person of God is so truthful that they don't need to swear oaths. What they say they will do. Because the people of God are people of truth. People who belong to God are the people of truth. Are you with me? Right. Why? So in order for us to have a clear understanding of what Jesus is talking about here, we need to understand the practice of oath-taking in the Jewish culture during Jesus' time and during James' time. Okay? Unlike modern society, where there are contracts, right, where lawyers draft contracts, courts enforce contracts, right? Such agreements, such legal agreements were not very common for, for the everyday citizen in the Jewish culture, right? I think I would not have a job when I was, if I lived in the Jewish culture. Not that many lawyers then. Because there weren't that, that many agreements then. So the way that people enter into agreements in their daily affairs is by swearing an oath, oath swearing, right? So if I'm if I'm if I'm if we're agreeing if I'm agreeing to buy something from you from you, if I'm agreeing to rent your house, I will say I swear an oath by something something that I will pay you five hundred dollars a month, right? We're clear. So it's oath swearing was a common form of making an agreement during the Jewish, in Jewish culture. The legal, the, the way that the oath is legally more, like, like the, the, the severity of the legal, the, 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 I'm sorry, the enforceability of those oaths really depend upon 
what you swear by. Right? So the more serious the commitment, the more serious the oath. For example, right? If you're really serious about an agreement, you'll say, I swear by my children's life that I will pay you. That's some serious agreement. But if I say, I swear by that chair, I will pay you back. That's not a very, that's not a very legally binding agreement. So the severity of the oath, what you swear by, determines the enforceability of that oath in a court of law. The most legally binding oath was an oath swear in the name of God. Israel, remember, is a a religion-based culture. And if you swear by the name of God, you cannot get out of the agreement that you enter into. The court will enforce that agreement. Like the evidence, what what did he swear by? Oh, by the name of God. Oh, then he has to pay you. No doubt. So that was the agreement. Are you with me? That was a culture. But human beings being human beings, right? When they enter into agreement, you know, we are a creature of loopholes. We want to go into an agreement but we also don't want to really commit ourselves to our agreement, right? So the way that people correct, like, create loopholes is swearing by something that is not really legally enforceable. So some people swear by heaven. I, I swear by heaven that I'm going to pay you $500 a month. I swear by earth. I swear by my hair. I swear by this, I swear by that. They enter into an agreement, swearing an oath, but they never enter an agreement swearing the name of God. Why? Because they know they can't get out of it. So even the swearing, practice swearing of oath, people are kind of duplicitous. Right? Look, rule number one in the practice of law, always get paid first. That's the number one practice of legal. Get paid First, and Dr. J will agree. Why? Because when you come in need of something, you're willing to pay anything, right? But after your case is resolved, do you think you want to pay for it again? Do, do, do you think you want to pay for it? No. So people's attitude changes when they need something, they're willing to pay. But if I already solved the problem for them, they don't want to pay anymore. So people are like that. They want to get out of their commitments. So they're trying to devo- like devise a form of oath swearing that they could kind of get out of. This is what Jesus is condemning. Jesus is condemning oath swearing because he knows the duplicitous heart of man. Jesus is teaching through these verses, number one, God is not a God of loopholes. He doesn't play that game. Just because you swear by heaven and not by the name of God, and if you think just because you swear in the name of heaven and not by God, you can get out of that agreement, you're wrong, Jesus is saying. Any oath that you promise to God and to other people, regardless of what you swear by, God finds it binding. Number one teaching through this verse, whatever you promise, God finds it binding, regardless of what loophole games that you play. If you swear by heaven, Jesus says, God binds that commitment. Why? Because heaven is where, is where the throne of God is located. If you swear by earth, God finds that 
God finds that oath binding because the earth is God's footstool. If you swear by Jerusalem, God finds that commitment binding because it is in Jerusalem where the, where, where the, where the temple of God dwells. Whatever you swear by, whatever you promise by, God will keep you in the eyes of God, that is a binding promise. And if you go against what you promise, God will find it a sin. What you promised, if you don't live up to what you promised, no matter how innocuous you think the breaking of the promise would be, it's a sin. Let's have coffee. Okay, let's have coffee this time, this place, okay? Saturday morning comes. You feel sick. And you want to cancel. You think such breaking of that promise is innocuous, innocent. God doesn't really count. No, you're wrong. It's a sin because you're not living truthfully. Any promise that you break, you're not living truthfully. You're living contrary to the character of God. Jesus is saying, don't take oaths. Why? Because a person belonging to God do not even do not need oaths. Why? Because a person who truly belongs to God are the people whose words and whose actions match. How do you know whether you're a person of God? Do you live? Does your, does, do your words match your actions? Small or big, right? Whether it's small promises like going to dinner or big promises about, I don't know, employment agreement, whatever it is. Or the big promise about, and we'll talk about this later, about being a member of this church what it means to be a member of this church, or the big commitment of what it means to be a husband and wife. Remember, you guys who got married in church? Before God and before the church, you promised to be true and love your spouse, right? Remember that commitment? I know, because some of, I was there for some of you. If you break those commitments, you are not a person of truth. You're a person who's different from God. Taking, let your yeses be yeses, no be no's. Jesus is saying, be a person of truth. Why? Because God in his nature, God is a person of truth. God is not only the truth, he is faithful, which means whatever he says, he does. That's the nature. God is, God is faithful means God is not only truth, but his actions match, match, his actions match the truth that he, that he declares. A couple of examples. Number one, Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2, it says the Israelites were in, held in captive in Egypt for 400 years, and the Egyptian masters were being oppressive to those Israelite slaves. And the Israelites... Pray to God. But what does it say in Exodus chapter 2? God heard their prayers. 
because God remembered the covenant he made to Abraham. Exodus is clear. The reason why God sent Moses to deliver his people out of slavery was not because the Israelites were praying to God, but it's because God remembered the promise he made to Abraham. The promise he made to Abraham was, Abraham, I will be your God. You will be a father of many nations. This land, your descendants will inherit this land. God remembers his promise. That's why he delivered the Israelites. God is a person who keeps his commitments. Why are we saved? What is the nature of our salvation? Why did God save us? Is it because we're inherently lovable? Is it because our parents raised us Christians in the church? No. The biblical answer is God chose to save us because he committed to save us, because he promised to save us. He promised to save us through Adam and Eve, right? Remember when Adam and Eve sinned, God promised that he's going to send, send a descend, his king who's going to crush the head, who's going to stomp the head of the serpent. He promised Abraham that the whole nations will be blessed through you. And the word blessing is through Abraham's line, God promises that Jesus Christ, will, like, will, 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 the Savior of the world will come through, through Abrahamic line. God promised David, through your descendants, a king will rise. That king is also Jesus Christ. So all these verses clearly testify. The reason God sends Jesus Christ into the world to save us is because he committed to, he promised to, he made a covenant to. Our salvation is based because he promised. And God always fulfills what he promised. Your salvation has nothing to do with your inherent goodness. Everything in the world, every religion of the world tells you you need to earn salvation, right? Buddhism, you need to practice the Buddhist rituals to reach nirvana. Hinduism, you need to do certain things for the gods to love you. Islam, you need to do all these things for you to get like 70 virgins and go to whatever. You need to do something to earn your salvation. Christianity is saying, no, 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 no. The only reason why God is saving you, God saved you, is because he promised that he will. It's based on his faithfulness. If you're saved, it's because God is a God who is faithful. God is a God who honors his promises. His words, his actions match his word. You and I are saved because his words, his action matches his word. Not living like that is evil, Jesus says. Not living like that, James says, you deserve condemnation. You deserve judgment. If your words do not, if your actions do not match your words, you are not a person of truth. Therefore, you, we, deserve, we are evil and we deserve condemnation. Man, let me risk my water. But the reality of the human being is this. Let's talk about human beings. 
the way we know that we are sinners is no one's, no one's actions matches their words 100% of the time. We are not people of truth because our actions do not match, line up with our words. I can give you example, example after example. Look, there was, you know, the, the politicians who advocate for the strictest of mandates and mass requirements, what, 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 what was found out about them? They went through party maskless, right? Governors and politicians that says everyone will stay home, everyone must wear masks, it was discovered, like, all, many of them were discovered going to a party maskless. They say one thing, their actions don't match what they say. Politicians and pastors who advocate for the strictness of moralities in the public end up getting entangled in seedy affairs. Their public declaration do not match, their actions do not match their declarations. Right? Advocates of women's rights, lawyers and politicians who advocated women's rights were later accused of either abusing women, raping women. We see politicians do this all the time. And we say, hypocrites. They're hypocrites. And it's true. But is their hypocrisy strictly limited to them? Are we not all hypocrites as well? Do we not go back on our commitments? Do we not say and act in different ways? Don't we? Look, I have no doubt that when those politicians who say, like, who advocate the strictest of mask mandates, I have no doubt that they come from a good place. Right? Those politicians and pastors who advocate the strictest of sexual morality, I think they come from a good place. Those politicians who end up abusing women, I think they really believed in women's rights. I have no doubt that they do. but their actions do not match what they say because their hearts have a desire that overrules what they know to be right. Paul says, I notice a desire in me that does not want to do what is right. These people come from a good place. You come from a good place when you, when you advocate for certain things. But the problem is, is something about your desire and my desire that overrules what we know to be right. Do you understand? We are hypocrites because of a desire that is in us. Desire that is born out of ignorance of the living God. And no matter how much things that you know to be right, 
if your desires are not renewed, you will never live inconsistently with the truth. Do you understand? There's a, it's like a person who knows watching explicit things are wrong. They are scientific evidence of what pornography can do to your brain. There is, and you can, you can disagree with morally, you can have all these disagreements about why watching these things are wrong. But if your desires don't change, if your desires do not match up with the truth, you will never be able to overcome that addiction. No matter how much information you have about how wrong it is. In order to live consistently, our desires have to match up with the truth. Do you understand? That's what salvation is. Salvation is not a mantra that you agree to. Jesus Christ died for me, therefore I'm a Christian. Salvation is not a mantra. Salvation is God changing your nature so that your desires align with the truth. I listened to a podcast with Beckett Cook, Rosario Butterfield, and Christopher Yuan, three former homosexuals. Now, they're, they, they, they are not. They're Christian advocates of biblical view of sexuality. These people, three people were once homosexuals, but they have changed their lifestyle. It's not because they prayed the gay away, but they had a truthful encounter with the living God. And when they encountered the living God, God realigned their desires to match what the Bible says is right about sexuality. No one exercised the gay away from them. No one, they weren't turned straight. They're not straight. They, they, didn't, they didn't start seeing homosexuality was a sin because people say, homosexual will be sent to, sent to uh, hell? No. They simply had an encounter with the living God. And that truthful encounter matched their desires with the truth. Some of them still sometimes are tempted, but they say truth is louder in their lives than their desires. That's salvation. That's what happened to my wife last week, this week. Look, like I said, my wife, interpersonal conflict, told me over and over and over again. And I didn't want to sound mean, but I'm glad to, do, I'm glad to listen to her problems, the same problems, over and over again, three times a day. I'm glad to do it. It's hard to be honest with you, but I understand she needs to do that. I understand. But it's frustrating for me. But the way she overcame that is by going deep with the knowledge, in the knowledge of God. There's a YouTube person that she follows who teaches the Bible. And that, her, that teaching is leading my wife to go deeply into the Word. As she goes deeply into the Word, I can see her desires lining up to the truth. When she was telling me about you know, the, people, the person that she disagreed with, what did I say? I said, you should pray, right? And I didn't say that, but, you know, I said, I don't, I, I don't think you're, I think, I, I said, your unforgiveness doesn't match the gospel. 
right? What a great answer. But that answer, as truth as it was, that answer in itself was not enough. She needed a personal encounter with God through the truth so that her desire matches the truth. Now she's having the heart to forgive. That's an example of what God does. In order for us not to be hypocrites, in order for us truly not only be a person who knows the people who know the truth, but people who actually live in accordance to the truth, that's the power of God changing your desires to match His. That's what you need. Especially in the commitments that you made before Him. Two of the biggest commitments that you made before Him is this. If you're married, if you're married, the biggest commitment that you've made before the eyes of God and the church is wives to love, to, for husbands to love your wives as Christ loved the church and wives to submit to your husbands. Submitting means not, not blindly following like a robot, but respecting your husband and holding him the highest regard. You promise to do this before God in church, as Christians, as witnesses, actually think about the commitment that you've made in the merit, in the wedding ceremony. It's before God and His people that you will love each other this way. Are you honoring that commitment? Husbands, are you sacrificing? Are you loving your wives as Christ loved the church? How does God love me? I go to him with the same problems over and over and over again. I go to him with the same sins over and over and over again. The sins and the, and the attitudes that I have sometimes take decades to overcome. But does God say, I've heard it all. Man, when are you going to change? Man, get a grip. Is God impatient with me? No, he listens to me. Because that's how he loves me. Husbands, is that how you love your wife? You've committed to love your wife that, like that before God and the church. Wives, are you respecting your husband and holding him, like, holding him the highest regard? Are you? But the words that you speak and the attitude that you have, is your husband your head that has God appointed? Are you treating him that way? If not... You are not living a life, you are not living consistently with your commitments. You are not living truthfully. But it's hard loving our wives and loving our husbands, isn't it? Do you know my wife? Do you know my husband? Do you know how lazy he is? Do you know how he doesn't refuse to take out the garbage and mow the lawn? Do you know how lazy my wife is? She's so critical. Nothing's good enough for her. My brothers, those are excuses. Those excuses do not absolve you from the commitment that you made before the Lord. If you're not loving your wife as Christ loved the church, what? If you're not submitting to your husband as Christ has commanded you, you're breaking your vows before the Lord. That vow 
God will hold you into account on the day of the Lord. Part of my job, I think, is to prepare you for the day of the Lord. The Lord will ask you how you've committed, how you've acted in accordance to the commitments that you made. How do you act in accordance to the commitments that you've made? You need the Holy Spirit to constantly renew your desires. The source of you desiring to live according to your commitments doesn't come from your husband or wife. When you look at your husband, when you look at your wife, all you will see are their shortcomings. Amen? Oh, it's just me? Okay, your, your marriage is perfect. The source of you making your commitment comes from, as you trace everything to Christ, as Christ is more revealed to you, your desires are in line with the truth. Otherwise, you're sinning. The commitments that you've made to the church. Members, remember that commitment that you've made to the church? About how you will be committed to... Look, the Bible is clear. The highest calling of the Christian is to build up the church. Jesus says the world will know you're my disciples if you love each other. The word love is agape. It's about service. James says, if you say you have faith, but do not care for the members of your church, you are a liar. Your faith is not real. That's what James is saying. James is saying, no matter what you declare your faith to be, if you're not showing mercy and charity to the people of the church, your fellow Christian brothers and sisters, your faith is not real. That's what James is saying. No matter how entertained you are by the things that I say, if you're not committed to the body, if you're a member of the church, I am so sorry to say that you are not living according to your commitments, and God takes that really seriously. I know the reasons of why you're not committed to the church. I don't know. Maybe you're far away. Maybe you're busy. Maybe you're tired. I don't know what the reason is. And maybe those are, those are some of our valid excuses. But at the end of the day, God will hold you responsible for the commitment that you've made. Guys, I'm not, it's not me being mean to you. I'm telling you because that's what God will judge on the day of the Lord. God's calling to your life is simple. Build up the body of Christ. Live consistently to the truth. In the day, day of the Lord, God's going to ask you, how have you used your gift to build up my body? What are you going to say? No, but I intended to. No, but I was too busy. No, because I was too sleepy. No, because they were mean to me. God fulfilled his vows despite the fact that we're sinners. God fulfilled his vows. Abraham did a lot of crazy bad things. David wasn't a picnic. All the, genealogy, all the people of God that, you know, the, the, from Abraham down on, they did sinful things. David was a murderer. But God still kept his promise because God is a God who keeps his word. Are you a person who keeps his word? 
I'm not saying this to hurt you, but to prepare you for the day of the Lord. If you think the Lord is not going to hold account of, of your commitments, you're wrong. Members of the church, I implore you to repent and ask God, let me serve the church. And some of you will say, loophole, okay, if God's going to hold me to account, then I'm not going to commit to anything, right? Right? Hey, I'm not going to commit to anything. If I didn't commit, he can't hold me accountable. But there's a little problem called the parable of the ten talents. Remember the parable? He gave one servant ten talents, the other one five talents, the other one one talent. The other, the one talent dude didn't do anything with the talents that, he, that the master gave him. He didn't do anything with the t- talents that the master gave him. Jesus called that guy wick- lazy and wicked, and that guy is sent to hell. If you call your claim to be a Christian, God has called you to this body, and God has gifted you with a certain gift that he wants you to use to build this body up. He's going to ask you whether you've done it or not. Guys, what I'm convicted of this week, and maybe because I'm a workaholic, but I don't think that's true. God has called all of us to be exhausted in this world. This place is a place of labor. This place is a place of labor. Laboring for the kingdom of God. It is not a place where you enjoy video games in your free time all the time. It is not a place where you enjoy Netflix all the time, every day, all the time. Netflix is fine, I suppose. Video games is fine, I suppose. But, it is not, but you're, God has not called you for your life to be dominated by these hobbies. It's a place of labor. Look, grow Rebecca's dad at 70 years old, going back to the ministry, preaching. That's the way to do it, man. God has called you. Stop being lazy. Stop not, stop not, stop not honoring your commitments. God really does care about these things. Let us pray.